Welcome to the Presidies Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special episode of the show live from the Surface Navy Association Convention in Crystal City is my counterpart in outreach, retired Fleet Master Chief Paul Kingsbury. Hello, Paul. Hey, Ward. How's it going? It's great to be here on the SNA Terrace where we are this year. Yes, it's busy. It's robust. It's vibrant. This Lots been of activity. a real blast. Day two here. And so joining us for this episode is the skipper of the Zoomwell DDG-1000, Captain Drew Carlson. Drew, thanks for coming by. Absolutely. Thanks, Ward and Paul. Uh, I'm glad to have a chance to talk. So let's talk about your article in the January issue of Proceedings. It's on page 12. It's called Why I Take Rules of the Road Exams. What's this all about? I think initially uh, this started as a an internal think piece. It was one of those days where I had a lot of things going on, and my nav uh, came up to the cabin and dropped off the exam and said, here you go, Captain. I'm collecting them on Friday. Um, if you need more time, let me know. Uh, which is how we've been running it typically. Um, there has been some instances where I, I know that they're already in the wardroom taking them and I'll stop by and make it part of the plan of the day for me. But this particular day, I, I was not in the mood. And uh, I had some other st- stuff going on. And I also, there was a little bit of professional embarrassment. I think we had been probably two-thirds of the way through uh, a three-month maintenance avail. And knowing that we weren't going to go to sea for a bit. I had probably not picked up my coal regs and my other stuff and dusted them off. So I was feeling, I mean, there's a little bit of uh, personal pride in that when I get a rules of the road exam, I want to take it right then so that I can say, yeah, this is stuff that I carry in my head and I'm, I'm able to, uh, on the fly, it's all baked in my brain. And uh, so I, w- I felt a little bit unarmed and inconvenienced and, and, you know, th- and that's where I think with, Unless you're able to reapply some humility in our professional endeavors, you, you let ego kind of creep in. And there was a little little voice saying, you're the captain. You don't have to do this. And uh, So that reminds me of my first tour. I was the NATOPS officer in VF-32. Same deal. I'm passing out NATOPS exams, the just, you know, sort of pop quiz in the ready room during an AOM. Handed to the XO. The XO looks at me and he goes, this isn't filled in. And he was serious. <laughs> Right. So I get it. He had one of those moments. Yeah. So I, I, I did some internal. All right. You know, I, this is important. Uh, so I, I think I tabled the exam and, and put it on my personal calendar, told Dexo, hey, Thursday at two o'clock, don't let people up. I'm going to I need an hour to bang out this this exam. And then I spent the next two days cramming for it, just like I did as an ensign or at, when I'm at SWAS, when you have to make sure amongst your peers and in front of, you know, um, the folks that are evaluating us. And so I thought, you know, it, this is important, and it, it reinforced some things that I've had littered throughout my standing orders, whether they're um, hearkening back to the, the writing, the Thucydides stuff that I put in there. Uh, in fact, that was on the back cover of the standing orders that I had to remind people. So that, remind the audience what that reference is yeah, to. Yeah, uh, it's Thucydides records the, the Peloponnesian War, and in that, that whole missive, which is pretty extensive, um, when Pericles addresses the assembly in Athens, he reminds everybody, hey, that maritime skill is not something you can do by chance or by accident. You, you have to work at it. And then further goes on to say, when you work at it, then you'll have the confidence you need. And in fact, absence of that will make you're not skilled and then you won't, you'll be timid and we won't fight. We won't be able to win. Um, and, and I think, you know, today's version of that is what Admiral Brown has been talking about. We need to own the fight. And I think when I think about ownership and, and what we need to do, if, if we're not um, confident enough in what we own, 
it's easy for me to say, well, I don't own that. It's not, not my thing. And then I don't devote my time. I don't really make that or inculcate my, my, that as a pillar of the profession that I, that I profess. So, um, so I, I went back to that and said, well, it's, it, I need to, to look at um, doing this exam because it's important and then make sure everybody else is doing it. And then, uh, and the neat thing I do, I get with my navigator, who's just a, a stellar officer. Um, I'll give her a shout out. Heather Bowie is her name. Uh, what rank? Is she she's a lieutenant. lieutenant. Okay. Yep. Um, she um, she will always provide discrete feedback, and it's not hey captain you passed or it's it's captain here's the questions you got wrong, here's the reference. I mean she takes the time and I, and my general sense is that everybody gets that kind of feedback because she's interested in the learning. Yeah, and, it's and not the about the ego or it, the embarrassment. It's not about the ego. Right. It's certainly not about just getting the check in the back. It's white hat, as we used to say at the Naval Safety Center. Right. I, I don't. It's not. Can I can I list a number of? Did I get eighty percent? Okay, I'm fine. I'm good enough. Um, and, and so and that's always been helpful. And for me too, it it helps unearth parts of uh, the coal regs that I don't really know or I'm, I'm not as conversant in. Um, it also helps us make sure we talk directly about terms, uh, even in the questions. And so I, there's a little bit of feedback I can provide as the CEO that owns the deck qualified officers to say, if, if we term a question this way, use the word, the occupation of the vessel. Well, do you mean, is that what the vessel's doing or is that what they're paid to do? And, and that comes into play when you're talking about a pilot vessel, if it's actually engaged in pilotage duties if it's a replenishment vessel, but it's not actually doing a replenishment. And so you get different hierarchy. There's other, all of that things where, where words matter because they describe the situations that really then drive our courses of action um, from the, the bridge. Yeah. So this really resonates with me. I was a former nuke surface electrician mate, right? So we're big into continuing education, continuing certification. You take monthly continuing training exams regardless. Um, and from my perspective, right? Yeah. I, you know, Far too often we think command mashy, flea mashy, I just care about enlisted stuff. No, I care about officer training and, and competence, right? Because as we saw, when it's not there, the outcomes can be bad. So to me, it makes sense. Like if I'm on a jet, as I travel a lot, I know that senior captain in the left seat is probably revalidating his skills and being certified, right? That's he right. can't get in that seat because if something happens to that co-pilot, it's on them. I see the same thing on the bridge, right? It, it, I mean, you're still the commanding officer. I expect you to hopefully drive a ship and, and have severe co uh, competence in that. So I think it's great. Uh, and I also think it helps incentivize self-study and uh, just the testing process alone, even though it validates things. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's great. It, it's sort of a how would it read? And I'm thinking the summer of 2017, right, um, where all of this sort of became real in terms of crew training, in terms of the whole big picture with those two mishaps, those two collisions at sea that, that killed 17 sailors in peacetime steaming, not a war evolution. Um, so how would it read if the navigator during the mishap investigation says, yeah, you know, I, I gave the skipper of the test or the CO test and, and uh, he, he chose not to take it. That just doesn't set the right tone, sure. right? Uh, you got to lead by example. Um, and as you said, if you're going to be responsible for the conduct of the bridge, uh, you have to be able to walk the walk. You have to be the smartest on rules of the road of anyone in your wardroom, ideally. And I think you put it perfectly with this is a perishable skill. I mean, the more I wrote it, it kind of wrote itself. And, and because these are a lot of things that I would talk about to the wardroom. I mean, we end up... Um, I end up with uh, our navigation briefs in 
the wardroom typically where we cram everybody in because it's the biggest space that has chairs. And um, we close out after the risk mitigation brief and after the navigator's done and after the officer of the deck is briefed what they're doing and everybody's talked through that. Then we, I sit back and say, okay, what's different? And, and how do we feel that we're current? I mean, are, what, are, what have we not done in a while? Um, and I think there's that we do have a tendency to, as a community or a culture, to kind of over add bureaucracy to it. But process wise, we've been able to step back and say, look, it's not even about the, the colored charts on the, at the PowerPoint. I don't even care. What I really want to do is have the team who's going to execute this thing have a discussion about what we're going to do. So we know we can look at each other in the eye and say, hey, when this happens, this is what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to call you and you're going to be in steering control and you're going to do this. And, and we talk about it to make sure that that's one more pulse point. And I, my general sense is that COs and wardrooms across the fleet are probably doing this. So it wasn't nearly as much uh, a missive to try and encourage people, hey, go do your job and take these exams. It, it certainly right. started as a, you know what, if, if me, who I'm, I'm in love with this stuff, and I keep the coal regs on my, on my desk right there so that if I have an idle minute or I'm done early and I'm waiting for the next office call, I can flip through it. Um, but I still you know, would have those, those kind of very human, like, I don't, I don't feel like doing it today. And, and I needed that encouragement. And that's kind of where the article started from. Well, you got a great quote at the beginning. It's a Pericles quote. Maritime skill is like skill of other kinds, not a thing to be cultivated by the way or at chance times. It is jealous of any other pursuit which distracts the mind for an instant from itself, right? So that's that's the career or the, the day of an 05 or an 06 where you're answering another bell. might be something administrative, might be something... Sure. Right? And, and so to focus on a core competency may seem trivial or, and this is what you've copped to at the beginning of the show here, yeah. it's like you had a moment where it's like, don't you understand what I'm doing? Right. I'm, I'm setting the world on fire and now you want me to do this pedestrian thing? Right. Right. Um, and and uh, so that's a, that's a beautiful quote. And also, as you, you sort of paraphrase this, but at the end of the article, you talk about it, Pericles forewarns, quote, their want of practice will make them unskillful and their want of skill timid, mm-hmm. right? So we're talking about war fighting here. We're talking about being ready when the bubble goes up. And these chaotic times we're living in currently, um, never mind the peer threat, let's talk about what's happening in the North Arabian Sea. Sure. Right? So it's as we all know from our Navy lives, it hits you when you're least ready. So it's probably best to be ready at all times. But this tone you're talking about, um, is as old as, as seagoing warfighters sure. itself, you know. So I think those are those are really cool quotes, and I thank you for your willingness to cop to um, that one little misstep, right? Because I think there's a lesson for regardless of what your rank is, we all have these moments um, when you let the the fundamentals slip um, in in because of other things, right? I, I think there's also within a team culture, there's an opportunity to to allow regardless of pay grade or see time to allow some vulnerability and allow other people to speak in we, we codify that like in in sound shipboard operating principles and like forceful backup questioning attitude those are those are phrases that are around but i think the idea is you, we need to in any set so it could be ceo with a wardroom it could be a division officer with a division it could be a work center soup with with the junior sailors we need to cultivate those opportunities for somebody to to say no i i I think I need to talk about this 
um, this doesn't look right or I, I, I can be confident enough and yet know that I've got an atmosphere of humility where at the senior levels, whatever seniority that is, where they're going to be thankful that you have that. So for me, cultivating an opportunity for somebody to say, hey, Captain, I'm not sure you're right, can, can help the whole team, not just my individual performance. But then that kind of breeds um, that kind of professional endeavor that we have across the board. So everybody realizes that they're going to be held to account and we can raise the level of play across the team because we're all going to we're all trying to do it together. We're not in competition. I mean, aviation's got that culture embedded, right? True confessions and they go in the wardroom and can talk. Skipper all the way down to New York. Yeah, Edson, I think right? I think in general, right, that's some of the uh, again, the CR lessons learned were about be more like aviation in terms of uh, admitting the transgressions. But I can tell you, having been in four fighter squadrons and on an air wing staff, that is dependent on the tone set by the, the CO. Um, and, and, you know, the ability to be candid and, uh, and admit things is a function of how much punishment will result. And, and from the CO point of view, that's all things are not created equal there. And, and so setting that tone is, does start at the top. So let's talk about Zumwalt um, a little bit here, and let's start by talking about your career path. What were the major milestones on your way to taking over Zumwalt? Depends Starting how, from where did you go to school? Where did I go to school? I'm a Naval Academy graduate. Uh, I finished there in 95. Um, I was not initially a surface warfare candidate. That wasn't what I was looking to do. I was interested in running and diving and jumping and Seals. So I was uh, on the seal path, okay. um, but I had kind of left it open. Just combat diving, diving EOD, whatever. Okay. okay. I mean, th- in the mid '90s, we had not really turned EOD into this very land-based, and we hadn't divested. There was a lot of salvage, okay, par- portions to that, and so I was a little bit on the fence. Um, but I spent my summer in Coronado and and had a lot of you know the guys I ran with uh, were all of that ilk. Um, and that didn't pan out, and it turned out to be fine uh, in that sense. The, I talked with some of the guys on my um, screening board and said, okay, what did I do wrong? Am I not fast enough? Am I not smart enough? What is it? And It, it really came down to, <clears throat> I think, the, how the interview had gone, which for me, um, I had put everything kind of towards the interview, saying, all right, if the interview goes well, then I'm going to go do this. If not, I'll do something else. Um, so I ended up in line to pick a ship. Uh, I got down to what I had been coached on from one of the SEALs that, uh, had done that was who had lateral transferred from surface warfare. He said, well, go to court, go to California, go to San Diego, get a ship out of there. And then you'll at least be close to where you want to end up. And that may help you. And that's what worked for me back in 1980, whatever. So, um, I went and the Calpens and Chancellorsville with the two cruisers. Cause I, somebody had, I'd also heard whispering between all the people that were more well informed than I about ship selection. Um, Hey, you should go to an 06 command cause they can write, bigger paper and oh okay interesting okay um i didn't know exactly what that meant but i thought okay cruiser sounds cool i'll, I'll do that i've never heard of the battle of Calpens and chancellorsville at least i know what that is so i'll go there that was the extent of my my midshipman decision criteria um uh, in this in the early winter of 1995 so uh i went up to newport um and my, my roommates were all EOD guys. That Back then, we used to send EOD folks to, to work on their swoop-in first. So that's, yeah. that's who I clowned around with. Um, and then got to meet some more people and ended up on Chancellorsville and just had a life-changing boardroom experience there. Ed Hebert was my first captain. Uh, he's, he and his wife uh, are still in touch. In fact, 
um, his wife hangs out with my wife and they, she does some surrogate grandmothering for our kids. And it's just a phenomenal first experience in that wardroom. Um, that makes all the difference, doesn't it? It does. Because I had the opposite. I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't perfect. I mean, there were some guys that I hope I don't see again from that tour, but for the most part, it was it was a good ride. And uh, from there, I I kept itching to get back to uh, Special Warfare at the time. The PCs worked for Spec Warcom, so I said, oh, I want to go to PC. I want to be an ops. I'm I'm done being an engineer. I want to be I want to drive ships more. Um, and what came out of Millington through my XO filtered was, well, there, there are no PCs available, but there are minesweepers and it's small ship ops, ops, same, same off to Texas you go. So I went to Ingleside, uh, and rotated out to Bahrain and it was the operations officer with one of the rotational crews. Okay. And that coincided with operation, uh, desert Fox, which was 600 odd Tomahawks. Uh, it's Enterprise, the, right? Yeah, I was on Enterprise when that happened. 98, 99? I just left on GW. Okay. They executed our plan, but we won't go into that. <laughs> yeah, so I I mean, all I knew is that I was standing OD and then rotating back and standing mine evaluator and going and sweeping the last few mines up in the northern uh, mine danger area close to the Shad al-Arab, uh, watching missiles fly overhead. And, and I thought, you know what? This is this is all right. I can do this. Um and then at the, the timing uh, with that, we were short in the force. Um, that's when we, I think I had first remember hearing articulated we needed to have 275-odd humans to go to Newport to become department heads in each cohort. And they were, uh, we were short that. Uh, so there's an opportunity to, to volunteer to skip shore duty. And if you met certain professional quals or whatever and got an endorsement from your CEO, you could do that. So I, I said, well, I don't know what I want to do. But I like driving ships, so I'm going to keep doing that. So I went off to Newport again and um, joined a department head class. Um, and it, it's class 157, which I've said that a couple times this week because this is like walking through a cruise book here at SNA. Yeah. And, and you're seeing a lot of folks that are still around from that class, which, which confirms what we knew then, that there were a lot of significant people. Uh, I, I just remember being wide-eyed. I think I was like two days old as a lieutenant. I just promoted. Everybody else was coming off there shore duty so they were a little more seasoned fleet lieutenants and i just remember thinking these guys really know what they're doing and i, I need to up my game if i'm gonna you know, be able to hang with everybody and that that followed suit i went to normandy uh and had a phenomenal wardroom there and three great captains two deployments so I, I mean to answer the real question well it's been the whole career i don't know if there's been some seminal moments probably desert fox was one that said you know what i'm gonna do this I'm no longer going to try to lateral transfer out or I, this is what I want to do. Um, there were some moments uh, standing EAO as, as an ensign thinking, I, I like this sort of command and control relationship, working with sailors that are technically proficient to tell me what to do and I get to make a decision as a controlling station. Um, and then later on as a department head doing um, air defense as the, the whiskey for the George Washington Battle Group. Uh, on both deployments, one with um, Admiral Roughhead at the time was the battle group commander, uh, and then Admiral Sestak the second time around. So it, it, a lot of involvement, just doing stuff that the Navy does. I mean, it's every experience that I've had at sea kind of opened my eyes to want to continue to be part of the team. So, so when I was CAG Ops, Mullen was the battle group commander, and Normandy was the Alpha Whiskey on that deployment. Yeah. That was the 97, 98 time frame. Yeah. And... Admiral Sestak was Commodore Sestak, the Desron 
okay. aboard, and yep. his chief of staff was Phil Davidson. Oh, my old <laughs> so, boss. You know, it's all of these. Who's a classmate of mine? Yeah. So, so it's interesting to your point, right? So I remember Desert Fox, same thing. I was off watch. Uh, chief on the Enterprise, going up to Vultures Row. It's late at night, and then just looking at you, just see tomahawk plumes, three hundred and sixty degrees right. around. You're like, wow, yeah. and you don't, you don't understand that till you start seeing, it. and then that clears out. And next thing, the flight deck just lights up. Every jet is gone, pins pulled, fully loaded, and you're like, that's the, you know, the aha moment. I'm like, okay, that's combat power going. What's this going to result in? Right. And then to go down to the cheese mess and turn on CNN. And see Christiana Amanport there going, hey, it's kind of quiet down here. It's like, you don't even know what's going to happen. Well, then for Alpha Whiskey, as an aviator, as you're coming back, it's like, you know, the chaff and wheat piece. So this is where, you know, mode fours need to be working. And, you know, the the, the ROE and and return to force procedures. And all of a sudden it is really consequential. Um, So you really got to trust your Alpha Whiskey for sure. Moving on from there, I I went off... um you know, after after a straight run of sea tours, um, I said, "Okay, well, I'm ready to go to shore." Uh, I was able to get a spot at, at the postgraduate school. I went out there, uh, and that's where I screened for early command at that point. So I said, "Well, I'll go back to Bahrain uh, at, via Ingleside on a rotational minesweep crew." Uh, and there was just a phenomenal group of twenty odd of four COs down in Ingleside that really made the difference there. And and once you had a taste of command, I think that was that was part of what it. What ship was that? I was with uh, Crew Endurance initially on the Heron, and then I uh, we took command or took over custody of uh, Cardinal out in Bahrain, and then okay. came back and had Cormorant, and then we were the last crew. We decommissioned Cormorant. Okay. But that was a, another kind of a little bit of trial by fire. Um, I arrived in Texas, and they said, well, Heron's your ship, and they, we were off to Panama within six days. So five days of taking command. I'm, the whole time I'm like, well, do I really want to do this? You know, I've been doing whiskey stuff and going fast, and now I can go, you know, ten knots downhill. Am, am I? Am I? Is this what I want to do? It, was this an O4 command? It was O4 command? Okay. Yeah. Wow. So there were three of us, three of the mine force that went down to join up with the Kearsarge Arg and do the Panama exercise down in the okay in the canal zone. Um, yeah, and just a great opportunity. I had a, I had a great boss. Um, I had my first elision when I was down there. My first engine broke. I mean, just all, the whole what thing. What did you hit? I was hit by the tug. Oh, okay. Who, who showed up. Uh, the thing with the, the mine hunters, they were awesome, awesome ships when everything worked. Um, we still, I, I liked having a tug anyway. This, the tug that was contracted was as big as the, the mine hunter. Um, so he came alongside to make up lines in his uh, catwalk around his pilot house, came over my uh, Foxle and landed just on a wave action, and he like ripped some fiberglass out. And I'm sitting there; I still have lines over. I haven't even got underway yet. And I thought, well, this this is not how it's supposed to go. So, <laughs> so we 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 had a um, you know we said, hey, you need to stand off two meters and just sit there. We made a couple phone calls, we took some pictures, got underway, and, and there there we went. But it was. Um, it was a great opportunity. Another great crew, small crew experience. I think this is all leading up to how did I how did I get to Zumwalt? I guess rather than just life story. But um, from there, I thought, you know what? I I enjoy this, and I think I'm developing a skill set that if I can stay at the front edge of perishability and not lose it, I might contribute something. Um, 
So I decided to stay with it. I, I was able to get a shore tour uh, at a joint command. I uh, went to Europe and worked there. Uh, second time around, screened for 05 command and then fell in on a, another great ship on uh, Higgins and was able to, to command her through. So that's an Arleigh Burke Arleigh class. Arleigh class destroyer, destroyer yeah, number okay. 76. She was out of San Diego. She was on her third consecutive uh, deployment cycle as a ballistic missile defense capable ship. Uh, so the crew was really knew a lot more about everything than I did. And I, you, I used to tell people all the time, I'm, this is my first DDG. I've been a cruiser guy my whole life. They're, they're kind of similar, but kind of not. So uh, I was able to walk in with uh, a renewed sense of humility to make sure that I just didn't tell people to do what I say because I'm the captain. And I think that um, that worked well with that that team. They were they were a high high performing organization, uh, and and it was a, a joy to to be a part of that. From there, I had an opportunity to go to um, Romania and help. Uh, work with the Missile Defense Agency and the Navy stand up the Aegis Ashore missiles and batteries that we have in Eastern Europe to uh, protect NATO and the, the allied countries from ballistic missiles uh, out of the Middle East. Uh, a lot of that was just leveraging the BMD or ballistic missile defense stuff from Higgins. Um, so to Zumwalt, I, the way it had been explained to me or to be active voice, the way Millington people explained it to me on the phone um, <laughs> was, hey, you're doing something that's never been done before. We need another person to do that to follow uh, then Captain Kirk and Captain Tate, who were the, my predecessors in Zumwalt. We think you're a good fit, and the timing works, um, et cetera. Um, so I said, yeah, let's, let's get so to that. So what, what were your initial thoughts when you said yes, right? I mean, there, this is kind there of an unorthodox opportunity. Sure. Um, it. It was uh, it was very comfortable overall, but I wasn't sure how to approach the the conversation at the time. I, I ended up having a discussion with um, now Captain Devore, who was the working detailing for post command O fives that had not become O sixes yet, um, and had socialized it. And then I got a call from then Captain Cooper, who's now Admiral Cooper, explaining kind of the, the rationale of what we're doing with the Aegis Ashore. It was the first of. I mean, we really didn't know. It wasn't a command screen job, but I was a post-command guy, so there was this disparity in experience and rank and screen ability, if you will. So I was trying to understand, well, what, who's, my, who's supposed to follow me, um, and what are we looking for? You know, are, are we looking for different – do we need BMD people only? Do we need SWOs that are major command screen, or what, what is it? Um, and th through that conversation, that's how the, the Zumwalt thing had come up. I, I think part of it, too, was um, we we did not at the time, uh, the Zumwalt class or those ships were not in the fleet up model. They were being treated like cruiser 06 major commands that did not have fleet up. Uh, and there was a, a significant discussion with the surface leadership uh, coming from Captain Kirk, now Admiral Kirk, about just the complexity of the ship, um, the fact that there wasn't a lot of knowledge base to go reach out to. You know, on, on any other ship, uh, I think what gets solidified, if it ha doesn't happen before, it happens in Newport uh, at the, the prospective commanding officer. You bond a little bit. You gel. You figure out, this is who I'm going to call when I have one of those days where I, I start my story with, you can't make this up, or, <laughs> or you're never going to believe this, or, hey, this happened to me or to one of my crew. What do I do? That, that network 
has to exist in in command um and that happens kind of in newport and and what was not available to the Zumwalt CEOs at, at that point there was only one i think maybe scott smith was already um on his way to being the michael monsoor ceo but there wasn't anybody that people could look out to to try and figure out how to solve some of the things and, and part of it has to do more with the the ship itself is so different, and yet we've not really embraced or acknowledged some of that. I mean, we, we acknowledge the differences in tonnage. When people look at a spec sheet, they get it. Obviously, when you look at it, it doesn't. It looks like a barn that just kind of got stuck on a pier. So there's there's those elements, but it's a DDG. Well, well, our our surface force predominantly, unless you've spent some time, um, really on the amphibious. Uh, cadre of folks, it, it's predominantly Arleigh Burks. I mean, that's what people do now. Um, and so when you say DDG, there's an immediate bias. So there's a mental bias, even on myself. I mean, I was a Higgins CEO. I thought, well, uh, this is what we do on the Burke. It's kind of like a cruiser just in halves, you know, only one gun instead of two, et cetera. That's how I got my, got through the first few months on, on, uh, 76. But on, on the Zumwalt, it's not an early Burke. And the challenges we've had since then, it's not just driving it. I mean, that's significantly part. You have to manage 17,000 tons differently than 9,000 tons. You have to manage electric drive differently. You have to manage fixed pitch propellers differently than controllable reversible pitch. Um, you have to manage a different combat system that looks kind of like what you might have grown up um, on an Aegis type combat system, but it's not the same. The buttons are different. Um, but, but you also then, you have different checklists. And some of those things are not yet derived, or if they're derived, they're they're starting from, uh, you know, a PDF of the DDG 51 checklist. Control F, find replace 51 with 1,000, and here's your checklist, Captain. <laughs> Let's make sure you know you abide by it. Uh, and some of it's comical, and I've I've chosen to retain that, you know, and just have a new laugh as I indoctrinate one more person in the force about how the Zumwalt is not Arlie Burke. Um, to include, I mean, some of it, it, there are things that you slip in and we try not to be too snarky about it, but like if I get called about not turning in my main reduction gear quarterly inspection, it, I don't have a main reduction gear. So I, I can give you a blank piece of paper. I can, I can tell you I'm not doing it. I can ask for a waiver. There's all sorts of different administrative solutions to what was, I think, initially, um, a branding problem, uh, that, that we're still kind of, you know, thinking through. Honestly. So if we go way back on whose CNO watch was this cooked up? Was this Clark era? I have a uh, a glossy brochure that has a date uh, somewhere in the '94. Okay, and I think the brochure was made in the '97 time frame. It's a '97 product, but it, it so the 90, as early this, as '94 to '97. So let's let's assume we had a strategy that got this in the program of record, and so it probably involved. LCS, DDG 1000s, you know, other new types of shifts that were stealthy. And and so, uh, I mean, what was the, the frigate variant that, that we were talking about at that time? You know, so, uh, or a new class of, of cruiser that was going to be high end and, and had a gigantic radar. And, and right. all, of this, all of these classes turned out to be super expensive uh, once we started building them. Um, and then there wasn't quite a vision of how they would all work together, right? And so we, what we built in, or what happened, um, and this is just me talking, it, we built some one-offs, right? And I think you could say that DDG1000 
was in risk, was at danger of being a, a one-off. I mean, we're building three. Sure. But the integration piece, just like LCS, right? LCS, there was an intent, and then as it got behind time and over budget, uh, it kind of turned out to be a science project or a test bed that we'll figure out, can we put a laser on it? Can we put Marines on it? Can we, you know? And so whatever the original intent was gets perturbated. Maybe it gives you a, a capability ultimately. But I, I think it turns out you get a, a platform in search of a mission. So what was the original? I'm not saying this is what DG1000 is. I'm just saying that in in the popular culture and the popular reputational world of the Navy, it, it runs the risk of being that. Um, so what was it built to do originally? And and that this will fast forward us into the 355 Navy and how maybe the class has life breathed in. I mean, just yesterday, it was like this reveal of, of you know, Gilday's like, and then DG, DDG 1000, dot, dot, dot. It was like, whoa, we're actually going to use these things, right? Right, right. So in the 90s, even before I was commissioned at that point, I'm just midshipman Carlson, it was... Um, and I might get some of the order back backwards, but there was DD-21. There was a 21st Century Destroyer. There was also a CG-21 office. There was some merge in there. At some point, there was a DDX. So maybe not 21, but we're going to call it DDX. Uh, somewhere in there, it was not just the next big ship. It, it became a uh, land attack destroyer, the land attack destroyer. We're going to do something that's going to give us the same amount of firepower, call for fire, uh, naval service fire support on the... And we want it to be close to the beach. Uh, littoral as a word had entered the vernacular when it used to just be something you would pronounce wrong. And, and then, um, and so that was not a, a nameplate, but it was a, a performance parameter that the, the ship needed to have. It needed to be stealthy enough so it could lay off the beach at some range. The guns had to have an increased range so it didn't have to be as close. I think it was all we want more, bigger, better, and, and then stealthy. Stealthy would help precision it. fire, precision right? Precision fire, firing these little stealth. JDAMs, in essence. And then there were some other things that I think just got tacked on. They got tacked on to it with technology, certain levels of automation. Electric drive was a, a possibility, so that those things all kind of propagated throughout the program, um, and it really carried that way all the way through. And then it got more into needing to sustain the industrial base to build the ship. But at the same time, when we realized we weren't going to get ship numbers out, I, I believe the Navy went back. And this is more history for me, recent history, even though I, I lived through it, that we were not able to push out as many Arleigh Burks as we wanted because the industry needed to finish the Zumwalt class as well and they're they're big ships they're not who who built those uh these are bath bath, bath okay. iron works okay and i had a chance to go up um it, as when i was serving as the executive officer in Zumwalt before um even a year before there was a program review and i had an opportunity to go up there and the captain said hey you should go because you didn't get the bath experience you can kind of see what's going on up there plus you'll be able to see lyndon b johnson who's not put together yet so you get a better appreciation for how we built the ship uh, so I went up there, and it—I mean, Bath is a big yard, I, I think, as far as yards go. It, It's—it predominantly takes up all of that part of the town, um, and that ship was a huge chunk of it. I mean, it, it was in chunks, but it's all over the place, and so I, I can imagine, just on that anecdote and this—that one-day observation—that yeah, if, if we had left two of those ships up there, we wouldn't be able to use Bath to build any 
Arlie Burks okay. for a period of time. Yeah. And that's kind of a naive uh, assessment of it, but it, it resonated with what I was hearing, that, that yeah. if we didn't get the Zumwalt's out of Maine, we were going to affect the entire force, not just the delivery of this well, That's ship a cool class. way to frame it because, again, against the context of 355, we talked to the ship boss yesterday about the demand signal from the White House or whomever um, and the absence of a plan and how Acting Secretary Modley is trying to create a plan. But what you've just described is everything affects everything else, right? In a right. way that the it's just like, just make them, right? It's not how it goes, right? Infrastructure, limited resources. Right. I mean, I, 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 don't, I didn't even consider the fact that, uh, you know, Zumwalt would hold up Arleigh Burke, right? If, if the, those would be even closely related. Um, so here we go. We have made two. There's one in work, mm-hmm. right? That's where we are with the class. Um, so how long have you been in command? Um, I'm in my, I, I must be 13th month now, November of 18. And how long will you? You have left. I should be here uh, until August of this year. So, do you go to sea? Are you doing ops with a? Are you integrated into a strike group? Or I mean, wh- where, where, where are, where do you live? And if the answer is no, where, where can you be integrated? Do you think? Right. Um, the initial uh, part of, well, I'll do it chronologically. When we arrived in San Diego, uh, we were essentially adcon direct to the fleet commander. We hadn't been assigned a strike group. Uh, upon arrival San Diego, um, we chopped into Strike Group 9. So we worked uh, with the TR Strike Group um, and, and that chain of command uh, as a major commander just alongside Bunker Hill and TR. And the but what, what were you? Alpha what? Uh, nothing. We were not part of the oh, warfare commander. Okay. We were just a major commander seat at the table. Okay. So, so we worked with that. That gave us ISIC, uh, OPCON you know, issues. It gave us access to the Strike Group's JAG and the PAO and... For when we happened to be underway, we could do some stuff. But at that point, we were really immature in the combat systems delivery. So not a lot of uh, data, there, no data link at that point, um, very little radar resources, just going through stage testing of individual elements of the combat system. Um, with the stand-up of the surface development squadron that Admiral Brown talked about yesterday during his briefing, Commodore Adams then assumed ISIC role for all three Zumwalt-class ships. Um, that was... Uh, coordinated between when strike groups were having changes of command to just minimize some paperwork, I think, make it make it cleaner. So when strike group nine commanders turned over, I transferred over to the development squadron. And then the following month, Michael Monsoor's strike group changed over and then he, he moved his ship in. So there's now three of us. Um, and the six O6s, if you consider that that's fleet up for all three commands, so COXO, times three ships, plus the Commodore, all seven of us have a ring of steel that we get together and try to solve what we're doing uh, specific to the ship class, which meets one of Commodore Adams' uh, lines of effort outside of the, all the other stuff that he got publicly tagged with for medium and large USVs and, and all the other things. Uh, what we do, though, regardless of who we're ADCON and OPCON to with the strike group uh, changeover, We've been operating um, in 2019 at least about uh, probably 100 days. I think it's close to 105 or 110 days at sea out of the year, which is a pretty good op tempo in general for a ship that's not deployed and actually not even in commission. It's in commission special. It's not in commission fully. Um, And that was facilitated primarily because we had some out-of-area testing that needed to use 
warfare center ranges and testing places outside of uh, the immediate Southern California operating area. So I, we got a call. We needed to go up to um, Alaska where uh, the warfare center runs an acoustic range that the other parts of the Navy use. Uh, and we were able to go up there, which gave me essentially a hall pass to, to take the ship outside of the Channel Islands and, and go up north. So on top of that, there was a lot of head work that my department head, my XO, and some other folks had done over a holiday break. Said, "Hey, we're gonna let's unload this grand plan and see if this sticks, um, and provide some rationale." And that included not just um, going up to the range and coming back, but while we're up there, we can take the ship into certain ports, especially if they're on the high visibility port list that the fleet commander has interest in. Uh, so we were able to make port in Esquimalt, Canada do an exchange with the Canadian, the Royal Canadian Navy and host them uh, and then go, you know, have a beer on one of their ships and then just be in Canada and, and be the ship that gets to solidify that North American partnership. Uh, then we went up through the Gulf of Alaska and the Hecate Strait into um, where Ketchikan is in that area, in, inland, inside. Um, and we were there for about six days or so, running a lot of back and forth. Getting, I mean, it was phenomenal as a conning officer. You get to just drive Williamson turns and basically <laughs> back and forth at all the different speeds. Um, and, and it was a lot of fun. We did, we did that. A uh, little, little bit busier for the older CO and XO team because we were within land uh, pretty close. So he and I were on the bridge six hours a time. So I don't know. I used, we joked at one of the operations briefs that, you know, I hadn't really studied port and starboard watch probably in 15 years, so it's not a, a muscle. Talk about perishable. I mean, it's not a muscle you do. I mean, you can kind of fall back into it a little bit, like riding a bike. Uh, but I think the recovery is different. You know, you don't bounce back so much. Yeah. Your next really, watch. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, fun time. Um, and so, then, how's the, how does the ship handle at sea in heavy weather? You wrote an article. Um, what What issue was that where you were talking about the, the sea handling characteristics of Zumwalt? Yeah, we, uh, Lieutenant Joe Lilly, who's uh, moved on, but he, he co-authored with some folks in the wardroom, and I think he took author credit. I'm trying to think of what was, issue uh, that was in, but I, I direct everybody to check that one out. But compared to an Arleigh Burke, is it is it faster? Is it is it sweeter through heavy seas? Right. Is, uh, I mean, where, where does it live in terms uh, of the, I think the just I'll ship I'll try to find some handling. fair fair comparison words i think top end it's faster i think it may not be quicker um but we haven't done and there hasn't been a lot of interest um in that sort of drag racing type data yeah. it doesn't i don't think it means a whole lot i i do think that um from what i remember controllable reversible pitches there's a, there's a tangible feel that when that rudder when the prop bites you're getting something you know that your blades have changed to an astern belt, for example. Okay. Whereas with fixed pitch, we have to spin down and clockwise to counterclockwise or vice versa based on... So there's some lag. So there's a little bit of lag, but we're also throwing 4160 volts at it in 15 phases. It's some phenomenal engineering. It's a it's a lot of power. And, and it's basically your power drill, except you don't have to actually switch with the thumb and change your trigger. It just does it because of the command coming from the bridge. And so we're talking within 30 seconds, you're back up. Uh, you know, in the other direction, throwing water the other way. So really responsive. And what's, what's more significant that I really do appreciate the rudders are a little outboard and they're bigger. The rudder stocks are bigger. Their propeller blades are bigger. The whole, whole thing's bigger. Uh, And it's not just, you know, big American, like bigger is better. It's just, 
it's a beefier thing. Uh, and so when you throw that much power and you've got uh, some ex- exquisite control measures so that you can dial in RPM because you can't dial in pitch because it doesn't move, uh, we're talking the ability to fine-tune movement of a 16,000-ton ship within feet by, by one or two RPM on one shaft. And, and, and we've been able to do that with all of these different visits, even though the real mandate was go take the ship and do acoustic trials or go take the ship off of San Clemente and do calm water trials or go over here and we're going to make sure the boat handling system works. We're going to do dynamic interface testing in different weather conditions to make sure we can round out the operating capabilities of the ship class. Well, all of that time, the transit time, everything else, all the ins and outs, we've been able to build up a cadre of people that now can handle a 16,000 ton ship. Uh, alongside a dock, uh, sometimes without tugs even. I mean, we, we still make them up, but the last couple of times leaving San Diego, we had favorable winds um, because the, excuse me, the, the propellers are opposed. We can leverage some sideways walk the way frigates would, and we get both shafts rolling in the same direction, which rolls me off away from the dock a little bit, and we put the rudder counter, so we, we use an inverted twist. Um, those are all things I think we'd like to get in the next uh, update on how to drive the Zumwalt. But um, it's been really exciting to do that. As far as the sea keeping, the tumble home bow absolutely does what it's supposed to. It knifes through the waves. Uh, we don't see nearly as much pitch as a Burke does in similar seas. Um, in, in fact, limited at all. So uh, it's graceful in heavy seas. It's graceful in heavy like seas. Like an Adams class. That's right. Destroyer. We, yeah. we um, our first, uh, it must have been our third a replenishment alongside the Yukon. Um, the good ship Paul Hamilton was the other ship on the disengaged side. And we were watching them bounce up and down. You know, you can see the bridge, can't see the bridge, that kind of thing. And we're just like, what? what's the big deal? <laughs> so it, it's pretty neat. I mean, it's also unsettling. We got a nice shot from the CEO of Paul Hamilton um, that had, when he was in waiting station, took a picture of us next to the Yukon. And it, it's just, it's surreal because there's no humans. You don't see anybody topside because all of our deck handling gear is recessed inside of mooring station doors uh we fire shot lines out rather than receiving shot lines because they can't hit you know oh yeah you'd be asking them to hit a a three meter hole um yeah so yeah everything comes out you don't really see anybody and i don't let people topside in the back because I, i tell them by the time even if we're really good and we get a 90 second emergency breakaway and i turn the ship around you're still in the water five minutes before I find you, if I even know where you are. So let's just not go topside. It's it's very much, having not been a submariner, what I've found talking with some of them is that things I'm doing or things that have been done before me that I've adopted from my predecessors are submarine-ish in that sense. I mean, we like don't a really... surface submarine. A surface That's what submarine okay. in that sense. Yeah. Wow. That's really neat. The difference being, you know, payload and... Well, how's Viz out of the bridge? You, um, you feel it's, like- it's okay from the we have alcoves that have windows that we can stick our head out we typically keep one of them open anyway so the lookouts can observe by sight and hearing which is a requirement um i can see almost 178 degrees so 179 it's i can see clear to the stern it's just hard to know where the stern is so we're experimenting with like little bike flags could i just stick one out that says this is where the last frame is so i know if my transom's clear it's a little challenging to see the bow uh, as an 81 foot wide ship. When I'm when I've got my head out the window on the alcove on either the port or starboard side, I'm I'm 40 feet away from the center line, 
and I'm also recessed at a lower deck. I'm only one deck above the forecastle, so it, I have to kind of lean out for my height anyway to about my hip bone or my belt um, so that I can actually see where the bow is. Okay. It, it changes how we approach um, replenishment alongside. I don't have a bridge wing alidade where you can stand there and you're basically on the tangent of your ship, and whatever you shoot, that bearing is pretty good to give you radian rule. It's lateral separation, so you come in right at 150 or whatever your target is. For us, we, we do that math center line, um, and then if we're going to the porter starboard side, we subtract 40 feet, and then we try to move quickly because once we commit, um, the conning officer is not actually looking at the alidated for about four or five seconds because he's got to move to the bridge wing, stick his head out, and then try to get the line up. So we're, we're almost out of time. Yeah. Um, so real quick, what is, what is the vision for how – the, sh- the class would be integrated in a meaningful way, in a, in a capabilities way. And how soon would that happen, do we think? I think uh, l- going off of the remissioning of the ship that CNO Richardson uh, put out in late 17, uh, deciding to really focus on offensive surface strike, um, equipping the ship for offensive missions, leveraging its stealth capability as really its domain defense, giving it the opportunity to go do things um, it isn't necessarily invisible, but it is it is going to be hard to find. And that there's a threefold return there. I think it's hard to, to on a, from a surveillance standpoint, to, to locate it. It's hard to target it. And, and potentially, uh, it would be hard for to consummate those engagements with the other weapons. So if, if we continue working, you know, not only with industry, which is what a lot of the conversations here uh, are about, um, but if we continue to be smart with that employment, it, it could be an independent, service retained type uh, ship that would go do its thing, that it would be available to a combatant commander, but that uh, it's going to bring unique capabilities that other ships cannot do. I, I think if there's any danger is that we might try to apply it to be a different version of an Arleigh Burke. And honestly, there are things about the ship that are not very good as an Arleigh Burke. On an Arleigh Burke grade sheet, we're not going to do very well on certain things. But like there what? are... there. Are, well, I think there's... The manning alone, unless we allow ourselves some automation to do the war fighting for us, uh, it's going to be challenging to be able to conduct a lot of different missions all at the same time. If you're doing air warfare, strike warfare, undersea warfare, surface warfare all at the same time, I mean, that's going to be challenging for anybody. And if you're going to do that with a 300-person or if you're on the fat end, a 400-person cruiser, you might be able to get it done, but there's a sustainment piece to that as well. That, that is not something that is going to be as easily achieved uh, using a ship that is in a, a minimal manned concept. Uh, part of that is because of the manning model. If I'm equipped to have a strike team, then I get my Tomahawk folks the way I get them, but they're not going to be able to do much else. And what we've ended up doing, a lot of cross-training, I've got people that augment repair lockers, I've got people that augment stretcher bearers, people that augment... I mean, everybody that comes to Zumwalt gets to be a bosun mate, uh, a force protection expert, a damage control expert. It, it's like that across the fleet, but it's it's just more acute when you only have 160 folks to work with to begin with. So you're not you're not going to be able to do strike and do other things at the same time if half your tomahawk techs are also network techs because nobody really understands the networks that we have. And so we've had to do some OJT and some home growing uh, to be able to sit network communications manager, things like that. So it, it will be more challenging. Um, other things that are really not going to be in our lane, I think this is just my opinion, we need to probably talk about at senior levels and codify it. If you're 
a stealth ship and you're supposed to not be found, then some of the presence missions are probably not in our, we're not the first person you call. I, I shouldn't really be the first person you call to go do boarding ops, to go do um, straight transits back and forth to help escort people, um, even making port calls. I mean, as much as I like to pull in and show the flag and host somebody and say the United States is here to support, you know, the, the global communications and sea lanes and all that, as soon as I pull in, somebody knows where I am. So then I've lost a little bit. Okay. So, yeah. so there are those sorts of things where I think as much as people want to um, critique why the Zumwalt class itself is not an Arleigh Burke, there's an opportunity to embrace what's not Arleigh Burkish about it. And let's just go do that and make sure that we're really good at that. So if I need somebody to say on a sustained platform that has legs, that has an ability to operate uh, with excess power and to take information and spread it around the theater or to be in places that other folks can't go, contested environments, that we ought to be focusing on that, those sorts of things. So, again, are those conversations happening? So the other question is, we're building, we have two operational, building third. Are there any more in that class that are coming down the pike or is it going to just be three? There are just three. I think what I heard yesterday is is that some of our leadership is interested in, in having more, six more, nine more. I, I, I'm not sure what the right number is, and I don't know if it needs to be uh, a, a strong function within the larger equation of 355. Yeah, I, I do think that what we should consider is there's also an opportunity in, in that we are still able to operate while we're testing and operating the Zumwalt. We need to be able to, to be comfortable as a community and as a Navy, even as a nation, because there's so much national resource and treasure going into the ship to fail fast on stuff. And then if it's not good, let's not do that again. Let's not replicate that. And it could be easy things. If, if I know that every damage controlman I talk to doesn't like this particular valve, let's get that feedback to the industry, but let's also not buy that valve. Or let's make sure that valve doesn't get installed on FFGX, it doesn't get installed on whatever, and it could be a motor-operated valve or whatever. Um, that's the level of feedback I think we're able to do now so that as a gateway ship to whatever the large surface combatant is or whatever types of things we want to do uh, with the new frigate, uh, or even as we modernize some of the legacy ships, let's not modernize ourselves away from actual reliable operability that, that sailors can actually use so that they can own it and then we can go fight with it. Awesome. Well, Captain Drew Carlson, he's the skipper of the USS Zumwalt DDG-1000 here at SNA with us. His article is Why I Take Rules of the Road Exams in the January issue of Proceedings on page 12. Captain, thanks for spending some time with us here today at the Proceedings Podcast. Thanks, Ward. Thanks for everything the Naval Institute's doing as well. Uh, I appreciate the chance to, to help further the dialogue. And good luck with the rest of your tour. And uh, we look forward to seeing what uh, Zumwalt's capable of and what the class is capable of going forward. Yeah, me too. Thanks. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. See you next time.